Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. For March Madness, Sports Illustrated has a special show, Tourney Talk, hosted by Ted Keith and David Gardner. Each morning during the NCAA tournament, you'll find a recap of the previous day's highlights and a preview of what's to come. That's Tourney Talk with Ted Keith and David Gardner. Find it on iTunes, Stitcher, or SI.com slash podcasts. Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. It's this week's Beyond the Baseline Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. We are at Indian Wells, which surprisingly is not as conducive to podcasting as you might think. Some of it is audio issues. Some of it is being tethered to the Tennis Channel desk. Not that I am complaining. Some of it is beeping phones that also <laughs> impact audio. But I'm here behind Stadium Court 2 with my Tennis Channel colleague and occasional sparring partner, Brett Haber. We bring him in now. He's right here. Hi, John. Good to see you. Good to be with you as I am practically every, every morning, day and night. Yes. You are an analyst. You are a play-by-play guy. You are a host. You are essentially the face of Tennis Channel. <laughs> I would argue that, but okay, yeah. And I start by asking, How'd you end up here? What's what's a nice guy like you doing uh, in a joint like this? Seriously, how'd, how'd you end up here? So yeah, I, I don't know the answer to this either. That's uh, I actually have to think about the answer to this. I grew up in New York City, and uh, sneaking into the U.S. Open as a public high school kid uh, back before Arthur Ashe Stadium was built, and as you know, or anybody knows who used to hang around that didn't have the high price tickets, you could with a twenty dollar bill sneak in through Flushing Meadows Park and slip a 20 to one of the catering chefs who was out back on a cigarette no. break and then sneak through the kitchen and get onto the grounds. And I used to do that. I was in the stadium for Connors Crickstein 91 oh, wow. that way. I was in my senior year of college. And then uh, just always gravitated towards tennis. One of my first jobs in local news was in Cincinnati. Obviously, big tournament there. Uh, got connected with some of the people at the tournament, Paul, uh, Paul Flory and and Phil Smith and those guys, and then started becoming friendly with some of the American players. And when I got to ESPN, I, I hosted SportsCenter for a couple of years. Uh, I became the tennis guy. Uh, and I th- Robin Roberts was was very much the tennis woman. Really? And I think that she ha- she covered Wimbledon, and ESPN didn't have the rights to anything back then uh, particular. So when we would go cover the majors, it was just 
as a reporter to do news of the day and that sort of thing. We didn't call any matches. But Robin, who had been doing that, I think had to go do the Summer Olympics in 94. 94, was that a Summer Olympic year? Was it? Anyway. She was Barcelona. And she had to do an Olympics. For whatever reason, she couldn't go to Wimbledon, and they asked me to do it. And it steamrolled, and I I just uh, sort of got more and more into tennis over time. What is it about this sport? I mean, I, I don't have a sense. I mean, I don't call matches. So I don't have a sense of what the action is necessarily like from, from a calling perspective. I mean, what, what draws you to this? What are the challenges? What's, what's it like to call a tennis match? I mean, to me, I think it's what I find compelling is probably a lot of what players say they find compelling about the sport is that it, it's one-on-one and it's personality-based. I, I have never – I mean, I've called football and I've called basketball and I've call, called other sports. The fact that it's a – two-hour narrative and you can develop storylines and pieces of these players personalities and I, I you know people who work with me know that I like numbers and metrics and advanced metrics and that's fun but I, I really like the color I like sort of the the marrow of who these people are and what has brought them to this place this crossroads in their career so the fact that it's one person against one person outside of boxing you don't really get that anywhere else in sports i like telling that story over time i like the rhythm of tennis i like the places that we go john i feel like being here in march doesn't suck australia in january doesn't suck paris and london in the spring and summer doesn't suck so yeah it's it's a it's i i just enjoy um the, the compelling nature of the mano a mano. So, so the boxing analogy we toss around a lot in tennis, and I think that a lot of times it's really appropriate. But in boxing, first of all, you got ten, maybe twelve, maybe fifteen. I mean, you got three minute rounds. Mm-hmm. And the other thing too is that every single moment could end the fight. That's not true in tennis, obviously. When it's right. one all in the fourth set, and you've been talking, or you know, here in the third set, and you've been talking about whoever, David Goffin and. Stan Wawrinka, whatever it is, pick your two players. Are there ever times where you're like, you know what, I got nothing more on Sarah Ronnie. There is nothing left in my arsenal to talk about. This sounds like John taking a circuitous route to I advocate for his you... best of no, three forget, for forget the guys that. at the slam. I just can't imagine. There, there's always so much. In, you know, there are a lot of players out here. There's always so much you're going to be able to say about Kazakina. And yeah. 90 minutes into it, have you... Do you have times where you're just like I've exhausted it? Yeah, I think if you listen, if you it's a fair point, and as you know, I'm I'm pretty serious about the research and the preparation. But even that said, there is only so much you can say about a player who's 18 and has played 11 tour tour level matches. I think in matches like that, if you listen, you'll hear the rhythm of the commentary sort of start big with a lot of information, and and then kind of wane as the match unfolds. Which, if you think about it is not necessarily a bad play anyway. I mean, at the beginning, you want to set the stage, give context. Who are these people? How did they get here? Why are they here? Blah, blah, blah. And then, as it unfolds, let the tennis tell the story. So the fact that we run out of things to say as we should be saying less anyway is probably fortuitous. So there, there was a moment at the U.S. Open a few years ago where they couldn't find a broadcaster, and they said, you got to jump in. It was Roundage. I don't even remember who it was. Roundage stone. So they said, you got to jump in for a few games. And I said, you don't understand. I've never, I don't know anything. I've never done this. And they said, all you have to know is don't, don't talk during points. Right. You'll be fine. Why is that? Um, what's, what's the rationale behind that? The rationale behind it is that if you talk during the point, you will get a string of Twitter posts hating on you, you in the worst you possible said, way. Mother Teresa is an admirable human being. You will get a string of Twitter during, posts. If you said it during the point. It, there, there are, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's the sacrilege of the sport. Now, there are certain exceptions, and I think that you can bleed over into a point 
1% of the time. I don't think it's a hard and fast rule, and I, I think uh, every rule is there to be broken. I think in general you try to pace your stories to where you can say them in between points, you can say them uh, you know, on the even game uh, when there's not a sit-down and a changeover, and, and a lot of times you'll hear commentators, not every story fits in there, so you'll hear commentators start a story pause for the point, pick it up after the next point, and sometimes that takes three or four points to finish a story. Um, you know, look, I, I think every sport has its rhythms. Baseball is more conducive to sort of languid storytelling and right, that's where Vince Scully-isms. Exactly. Vince Scully does not, uh, exactly, that's where I was going with this. Yeah, I, no, I, listen, as we know, there, there are some rigid uh, traditions to tennis, and one of them is in the booth is that you let the play uh, speak for itself, and I don't think that's a a bad rule, but I also don't think there needs to be a, uh, a U.S. attorney's indictment anytime somebody speaks for two seconds over a point. You mentioned social media. I've seen broadcasters who are extraordinarily uh, famous and well-regarded in the middle of extraordinarily popular broadcasts still check their Twitter mentions. Is that just, I mean, what, what's feeding that, and is that just kind of the new rules of the road? No. That's total hubris and ego. And I, it, now, the one thing I will say is that... This is outside of tennis I'm talking Well, about. yeah. But I, I do not check my Twitter mentions during a match, but I do check Twitter during a match because I find that there's good information on oh, there. Yeah, not sure. all of it necessarily sure. verifiable, but sometimes, you know, a match that just concluded, people are in press for those two players, and they're tweeting out sort of some of the key things that people said. Stats come up. I think there's, there's information, reaction from other players. So I view Twitter as sort of a news ticker of the old days. Obviously, none of it, it's not the same sort of uh, emiss that, that that used to be. But, yeah, I, I no, if you're checking your mentions and your that, – that's nonsense. But it, it can be a valuable, I think, data information tool. You um – I will brag on you, as we say in Indiana. You do an extraordinary amount of prep work um, for this. Um, I've, I've seen your, your color-coded notes, and whether it's statistical or whether it's biographical, there, there's not a lot that, that eludes you. You come to play every day. Is that just the nature of men and women and draws of, of 96 or 128 and an awful lot going on? Is, is that personal? I mean, I, I'm sort of curious about your process because, I, you know, other – other people in your position uh, do not prepare as you do. Yeah, and I think there are a couple things that feed that. One is probably my own hubris is that I'm so um, intent on not looking like a moron, which I think is my default thing to look oh, like. If I'm not, so I just I want to be prepared. I also, uh, and you know this, and uh, take this for what it's worth, you and I get to sit, and, and for matches, I get to sit in between people like Lindsay Davenport and Jim Courier and Martina Navratilova and Paul Anacone and Tracy Austin and Justin Gimmelstaff, these are people who played the game, and I, uh, as, as someone famously wrote, I didn't play the game. And so if I'm going to sit there and, you know, hang with these legends, Hall of Famers, players, I, I feel like I have to be informed, I have to be able to ask the right questions, I have to at least hold up my end of the bargain, which is knowing the who, what, where, and, and when, and they can tell me why and how. And... Um, yeah, and just so over time, it's sort of fed on the self, and I have this massive database. And, and the other thing is, having called other sports, there are services that can, uh, you know, TV play-by-play -play is so pervasive now with all these cable networks and nationals and regionals. There are services that provide, uh, they call them boards for a football game or a basketball game, and they can automatically, they have software that will populate 
a board if you've got the Nuggets playing the Nets, and, and they can fill out a board, and then you can customize. That doesn't exist in tennis. Right, I actually right, right. pursued it with a company that does it for me for football, and so I, I created my own, and I'm constantly updating. And I'd say it's probably the most time-consuming part of my job, but it's also the part of my job that has allowed me to to have some level of success because I do this stuff that I don't think other people have the time or inclination to do. You could argue that it's a waste of time, but it, it's part of it's part of my preparation. It is. I mean, I do suspect that a lot of what you've committed to memory or what you've prepared just simply ends up unused. But well, that but that that's the, the alternative. That, but right? that's the discipline of it. And you know, it's funny. I, I listened to a podcast with Ian Eagle, who's our sometimes Tennis Channel colleague and one of the finest play-by-play broadcasters in multiple sports, and, and he talks about the discipline of not feeling compelled to use everything right. that you compare, uh, you prepare, and the percentage is, is you know, 10, 15, 20 percent, and I think when you're younger and less experienced, you feel compelled to, geez, I, I did this research, and I'm calling her match, and yeah, I don't know when I'm going to call her right. again, let me empty the bucket right. and get it, and you can't. And that's, it still has to be about the tennis. It still has to be an organic conversation with you and the analyst. You have to react to the events as they unfold. And if you feel so married to this research that you're just spewing facts for the sake of the spewing, you're doing no one a service. And uh, that, that that's true for every broadcast. That was, uh, I believe that was the, the Hang Up and Listen podcast with Ian Eagle. Exactly. We'll give them a, give them a shout out. Um, so part, part of another part of podcasting is that ideally people go back several weeks, several months later, uh, so you don't do these necessarily on, on topics that uh, will get stale. I'm not going to ask you about uh, Kazakina's preparation against, <laughs> uh, you know, against Pliskova here at Indian Wells, but here's a general topic that I do not suspect will, uh, will get stale if people listen to this weeks or months from now, and um, that is Maria Sharapova. Mm-hmm. Everyone sort of has has thoughts on this, and again, every every news cycle brings a new development. But uh, you, you want to just kind of riff generally, and then we can drill down a little. Yeah, um, and we were at the press conference in L.A. Lindsay Davenport and I. It was our first uh, live remote on Tennis Channel at a non-tennis venue. No, so. and, and Lindsay, I'll, I'll cut you off and say, Lin- Lindsay said there was no tip-off. I mean, you nope. you went into that prepared for anything from retirement to. I have a new lollipop flavor too. Well, the thing up until literally minutes before she walked into the room, we were honest to God fearful that she was sick, um, and that yeah. was you're like you're like, like disastrously yeah. dis- disastrously ill. And part of that had to do with that Lindsay was one of a handful of people, and you were on the phone, invited into a room, and we were told in advance that, okay, the press conference is going to happen, and then, Lindsay, we'd like you to come into a room, and a third party is going to explain the details of it, and he'll tell you what's going on. And so immediately we thought, doctor, and the people were really – and also her camp was super emotional and melancholy. What was the vibe there? I mean, was it – this is – Melancholy. Absolutely downtrodden. Her staff that we all know and have relationships with, there were people that were in tears on her staff. And so that also fed into the idea that, oh, my God, she's sick. What's happening? And this is something more than uh, it's it's been a terrific career. See you in Newport. Right. Retirement was obviously the big rumor. And then after that got pushed to the side, we thought she was sick. So in that sense, we're glad that it wasn't that. As to what happened, I, I will preface everything I'm about to say with the fact that I, my opinion differs largely from some of my colleagues at, at Tennis Channel, but I understand that my opinion differs because I, I didn't play Maria. And some of the people on our staff who played Maria, I think rightfully have a cause to feel 
cheated and to feel like she was playing at an advantage that they didn't have. And I completely and utterly respect their uh, taking that position. Here's the way I feel. First thing is, it was legal until January 1st of this year, the, uh, the drug. The Meldonium. Yeah. Meldonium. And so, uh, to me, it's, it's a very slippery slope trying to accuse her of getting a competitive advantage because uh, this drug was legal. Now, you can say that, you can argue that she was using it for a secondary purpose. You can argue that her explanation that she had deficiencies in magnesium or irregular EKGs or a family history of diabetes sounds like a crock as an explanation for why she had the drug. As far as I'm concerned, using a drug for a secondary purpose is not against the law. We do it all the time. Uh, I take Benadryl because it helps me go to sleep. Well, the original purpose of Benadryl is, is to cure an Tylenol, itch. Tylenol, yeah, sure. So sure. secondary purposes for medications, that's not against the rule. If she had a legal prescription from a doctor, even a Russian doctor, because Russian doctors count as doctors, I'm fine with her taking that drug, even if it did give them a competitive advantage. I read uh, a piece in a, a British newspaper about the fact that really everything that we do is in one way or another using science to right. give us yeah, a competitive the Matthew, advantage. Matthew Syed piece. Exactly. Yeah. Whether you're in an oxygen chamber to try to increase your VO2 or right. whatever. Right. Science is used to create a competitive advantage. So I don't think anything that she did prior to January 1 of this year was illegal. And I don't think she can be punished for it. Now, you can have your opinions about it. That's fine. Was she guilty of doping on the January 24th test in Australia? Yes, she was. Do I accept her explanation that she didn't see the notification that Meldonium was added to the list this year? I do. I accept. And, and it doesn't matter. She, she should get suspended. Uh, she's going to get suspended. She's already been provisionally suspended. How long should that suspension be for someone who took an illegal drug for one tournament? I don't know. It's definitely not four years. I don't think it's two years. If you use the Chilich and or Troitsky cases and or Streetsova cases as sort of a baseline, it's between six and 12 months. I think there's been a public sort of outcry, and in the locker room there seems to be this building wave of negativity towards Maria because she hasn't always been that nice to people. I don't know that that should factor into her punishment, and that the Mladenovic comments were very provocative, but they don't really have any bearing on the adjudication of the case. So that, this is my opinion, that it, it should be a six to 12 month situation. I know that the prevailing opinion is for something more than that. Um, yeah, you want you want to uh, you want to have at it? Go ahead. Come no, I, I I agree with a lot of that, and I do think that the set of circumstances and some of the, some of the explanations. I mean, I, I wrote this the other day. If she had simply said I'd been taking this on doctor's orders for personal reasons, that probably would have been savvier PR than to start enumerating mm-hmm. the reasons. Which people have then picked apart. The other problem with that, I mean, I had people right away. And I think we talked about this on the air. I mean, I had people within five minutes saying these are sports scientists at the Mayo Clinic saying there's no way she's taking that for, you go to Dwayne Reed and get a magnesium supplement, there's no way she's taking that for diabetes. If she had simply kept it vague, I think that probably would have benefited her. The other problem with that is once she starts trafficking in that level of specificity, Mm -hmm. once Head Rackets is starting to put out press releases with dosages, the expectations that she will then answer questions with a similar level of specificity, I think, have been put out there. I I think the... um, there, there's a lot going on here. I mean, one of them is competitive versus marketing and image, and there's a huge 
commerce strain to this. I think the way she's perceived by her peers completely irrelevant. I think Nike, I think that was a huge sort of moment in this. I think the mm-hmm. first few hours everybody mm-hmm. was processing, and then once Nike said we're suspending relationships, I think the tide really turned. But I do think it's possible to cheat. Maybe not in letter of the law, but I think it is possible to cheat by using something that's not unabandoned. I mean, you're basically saying if, if you know, sort of continuing that, you're basically saying as long as it's not on the ban list, it's not cheating. I mean, but you know what? I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I don't dispute that she got a competitive advantage by using the drug. But at some point, there, someone has to draw a line. There has to be a line between what's okay to take there can't and be, what's though. not okay. But yeah, but otherwise, WADA could have a very subjective set of criteria well, I mean, for suspending people. So there, we've all said, okay, WADA's the, the organization. They're the ones that draw the line. And until January 1st, Meldonium was on the right side of the line. So I, I agree with you that from a perception standpoint, she's losing. Um, but from a legal standpoint, and a, I just think that... what about that, just morally? I, I hate the notion that as long as it's not... I mean, you personally, but yeah. I, I, don't, I don't like the notion that as long as it's not on a list... It can't be considered cheating. And we talked about Lazex, and we talk about... I mean, some of that is done to get to a baseline level. Right? When Rafa gets his platelet spun, which people have mentioned, that is to get to a baseline level. That is not to well, why is that it. to get to a baseline level? And, and who's, he's had an... I mean, Kobe Bryant had a knee injury. Okay, Alex but who Rodriguez. says that... But so they only replace the, the platelet-rich plasma up to the point of exactly where he was when his knee was healthy. They don't the go goal. one ounce further. One ounce, but I don't think the goal is to have this supernatural level of, of plasma. I think it's to take an injury and get back. I think Lasix is to get 20-20 vision, not 20-10 vision. But so, but, so if, you athletes, ta- if you take it to get 20-10 vision, should you be suspended for getting an unfair advantage? I think there's a big difference between, yeah. So what about the guys, what about the NBA players who, and, and Djokovic and other guys who, who get in those oxygen, oxygen chambers chance. in their bedroom and try to train their... Uh, I mean, that's, that's a secondary. Then we could have the secondary. You know, they, the purpose of the oxygen chamber is to boost your red blood count. It's not for the secondary use. I just think athletes know when they are seeking recovery or when they're seeking to get back to a baseline and when they're seeking to exceed it. And I think it is possible, maybe not legally, but it is possible morally to cheat, even if, if you're eclipsing, if they forgot to post a speed limit sign and you're going 90 miles an hour, you know you're doing something wrong, okay, even if you, you're not going to get a ticket. But you did something illegal. If you drove 95 in a 55, you broke the law regardless that's of whether or not saying. you got caught. Right, that's what you I'm didn't, saying. She they, didn't break the law by taking Meldonium prior to January No, no, I'm 1st. saying they forget to post a sign. You can't get a ticket. But they, but they, it's not, and, but they didn't forget to post the sign about Meldonium. They were aware of it. It was on the watch list. Well, they posted the, the, the sign on January 1st. The nature of the rhythms of this is you're always going to play catch-up, right? I, mean, I get it. I get I, it. I, I just think, I just think the, the, my broader point is I, I do think that it's possible to distort competition even if... The letter of the law is not. I, I, and I, I can absolutely and not, I'm not even saying that. I'm not even saying Maria did it. I just, I just think that it's a little too facile to say like it wasn't on the list, though it's legal. I would just be careful about using the word cheating in that case versus gaining a competitive advantage. And I don't always think that gaining a competitive advantage is wrong. I think right. Yeah, it's a, that's where the nuance no, of cheating fair, versus. But I, you know, what do I? Know? Um, all right, on a uh, on a on a happier topic. <laughs> We are we are seeing some uh, Americans creep up, and mm-hmm. it, it does seem like when there are no Americans, we extol the global virtues of tennis, and mm-hmm. it's great that they play this everywhere, and it's the most global sport, second only to soccer. But when there are Americans that are in the field and are competitive, and it seems as though that's the case anyway, 
um, especially with some of these these teenagers, there is this sort of sense of giddiness and optimism. How much do you care where players come from? I mean, I I am an American, so I I don't pretend that I don't want our country to be involved. And as a broadcaster on an American network, we have more to talk about, and the sport is uh, healthier in our country and among our viewership when they have players to root for. But I think the fact that the sport is global is part of uh, what makes it great. So yeah, I, I do want. I, I'm pleased to see this crop of. Uh, by the way, I think the American female storyline has been good for a number of years, and we have something like twelve or thirteen or fourteen women in the top one hundred right now. And I'm pretty sure the number one player. Well, I was going to say we, we have the greatest story in all of sports that right. persists. So, but. but on the men's side, the fact that we now can identify a wave of, of young guys that appears, and it's too early to tell for sure, uh, that they're going to push each other and do some decent things at the very least, is encouraging. And I, I was in Memphis and watched Taylor Fritz. Uh, get to his first career final in his third tour-level event, and that was special, and he seems to be buttoned up and uh, both on the court and off, seems to have everything together. And uh, I'm from Maryland, and so I followed Francis Tiafoe very closely coming out of College Park, and his personal narrative is, is very compelling, and it was nice to see him start to have some success here. And then, uh, you know, what they did in the juniors last year between Taylor and Tommy Paul and Rhino Pelka and, uh, you know, uh, yeah, no, uh, Ruben, Koslov Donaldson, and Ruben going yeah, to Wake right, Forest. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, what we've seen is th- th- you did a, a great piece on Tennis Channel about the clustering effect, and whether it's academy tennis, kids pushing each other, or the waves of Americans, you know, the Pete, Andre, Jim, Todd, Mal, Chang generation leading to the Fish, Roddick, Blake generation leading to the Isner, Query, Brian's generation now leading to this generation, maybe this is a generation. I mean, we, we hope that it is. Three years ago, it was, woe is me, where are they coming from? Right. And now, they're all yeah. over the place. I do think it's funny how, and it's probably not specific to tennis, but there are these talking points no matter what. So if there are no Americans, it's what a wonderful global sport, mm-hmm. and the players come from all over, and if there are Americans, it's, hey, we need to bolster <laughs> Cincinnati, and if there's one Serena Williams dominating, it's come see the best ever, and when it's the field's wide open, it's Parody is great. Anybody can win this. It's, it's funny how the uh, the talking points tend to move. Are you saying that we're opportunists in this sport? Are we us? Um, I, I suppose at some level it's true for all sports, right? That my, Michael Jordan's great to watch. When Michael Jordan leaves, it's a vacuum, and hey, there anyone can win it this year. Uh, I do think, I mean, do you have thoughts about what the men's game is going to look like uh, five years from now when... You know, who I, I'm working on assumptions. The Big Four may well still be playing. Who knows? I mean, I think that's that's one story that we talk about all the time. But I think it's very real, which is that the career trajectories and the career shelf lives are much different than they were a generation ago. But do you give much thought to what the men's game looks like when, uh, whenever it is that Federer and Nadal, Djokovic are no longer gracing us? I, I haven't um, because I, I think it's so difficult to sort of foresee that far down the road and this era that we're in is so uncommon and you know what is it 40 of the last 44 masters 1000s have been won by four guys and all the slams since 09 except four have been won by four guys and so um yeah i mean just who are going to be the one-off slam winners the two-off slam winners who are going to be the burdicks and ferrers of the next five years guys who are right there, best of the rest kind of guys. I don't know who's going to populate that space. Are, are, 
are the the guys that we see sort of in the 23, 24-year-old range right now that look like they're poised to fill those gaps, are they going to actually fill them? And to me, those guys are Kyrgios, Dimitrov, Sok, and now team. it looks like Zverev, Team, and, and some other guys. They're 21, or in Zverev's case, 18, right. to 23, 24 Nishikori, is he, uh, this phrase, lost generation that we came up with, you know, is Nishikori, Chilich, Raonic, uh, Dimitrov, are they, where are they going at 24, 25? Chilich has his major, Nishikori's been to his final. I personally, I think Raonic. Wimbledon uh, champion. uh, Yeah, you said it, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. He looks to me like the guy, to use your phrase, buttoned up in every respect, from his coaching to his preparation. He seems like a thoughtful Dude, I mean, I, I, he goes to galleries in Melbourne. He's doing the Meridian tapping technique because he thinks it right. calms him down. He's apparently uh, knows every intricacy of the ATP pension plan, right. health insurance, and uh, yeah, this this is uh, this is a guy that could be a lawyer. And it just seems like he's improved himself. And, and the serve's always been there. The forehand's always been here. He's really committed to coming forward. Right. The match he's in tight. Australia right. against Stan was like eighty-six right. net approaches. Right. Uh, his return is better. His backhand is better. His movement is better. He's dropped weight. I just all those signs point to a guy who sees what he needs to do to get where he wants to go. And I, I'm with you. I think we always get asked, who's the next guy? Who's going to be the one? And we didn't see Stan coming, and now he's got two. To me, Raonic is the next guy. More than Nishikori, more than Dimitrov, Raonic is that guy. I agree. I wish we disagreed. But, um, <laughs> all right, finally, what's your, uh, you know, we don't, we don't prepare. There are no notes here. We're just... Uh... We're just talking tennis. What's uh, what's your go-to story? You're at a, you're at a cocktail party and someone says, "Oh, <laughs> Tennis Channel." What's what's? Uh, oh my god! What's your uh, what's your go-to? <laughs> so there, there's a I, lot of off-color ones. Uh, I'd, say, I'd say we could go a little off-color. So um, there's a, a lot of funny stories on the PowerShare series, which I've been a part of for the last oh, ten right. years. Yeah, that's that's the career. Right, right. McEnroe, Sampras, whatever. There's a funny story in Vegas a couple of years ago where we're playing Vegas and we were all staying at the Las Vegas Hilton, which is kind of a second, third tier hotel off the strip. And uh, we got an email during the week that we had the option. If we wanted to pay $100 a night extra, we could stay at the Wynn. And uh, a couple of guys did it, but most of us were only there for one night. We just were like, all right, we'll stay at the Hilton. We're not going to go out of pocket for 100 bucks." So we get to the arena. We're at the Thomas and Mac. We're playing and uh, it's Andre, and that's obviously a home event for Andre, so he's not staying in a hotel. Pete's there, someone else is there, and McEnroe's there. And somehow Mac didn't get the email during the week that staying at the Wynn was an option, so he was stuck at the Hilton, and he was pissed about it. And he, you know, had a you know spirited discussion with one of the executives on the tour about why he wasn't in the Wynn, and some people, and the, the, the guy in question said, you know what, John, let me, let me cut this off at the pass. Here, you take my room at the Wynn. I'll stay in your room at the Hilton, and we'll call it even. And John's like, fine. And so he goes, well, what we didn't know at the time was that they had given John, you remember in the 70s, Elvis lived at the Las Vegas Hilton, and he had residence there. They gave John just to kiss his ass. He got the uh, he got, he the, got Elvis the Elvis suite, suite which was eight. T- I mean, right. This is not a joke. Look it up. It, it's called the Verona Suite. You can Google it at the Las Vegas Hilton. It's eighteen thousand square feet with a pool and a courtyard. There's, there's a gift shop in there. And so we so th- th- this 
unnamed person on the tour staff actually had that room oh, now, and he called us all up and said, "You got we're, we're partying <laughs> all night," and they we had it was an all let me just say it was an all nighter. And then at some point, someone said, hey, should we call Mac over tell, at the wind and tell him to come over? <laughs> and someone said, nah. <laughs> <laughs> he found out about it the next week. Someone is going to devote a podcast solely to John McEnroe's stories. Uh, that's a good one, though. Um, all right. We hit our half hour mark. That was fun. How do we do? Do this more often. Anytime. We'll let the, uh, we'll let the listeners decide. But uh, good, good by my counts. That was fun. Thanks, John. Thanks. All right, everyone. That was Brett Haber. Friend, colleague, sparring partner at Tennis Channel with this week's SI Tennis Podcast. We'll do another one in seven days. Enjoy the last few days of Indian Wells if you're listening to this soon. If not, check back every week. Thanks for listening. Comments, constructive criticism, always welcome. You know where to find us. Take care.